Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 16. We are reading verses 1 through 12, and this is our assignment for today. After the death of our brother Tom, the death of my friend, I would prefer to preach to you from 1 Corinthians 15 <laughs> that we've covered in the weeks ahead. But what we talk about today is of ultimate consequence as well, the life of the church. So 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We got to do that again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, as we engage your word, as we hear your very voice in what you have written to your church, we ask that you would give us understanding, that you draw us into your comfort, that you be a refuge for weary souls, and that we also receive your claim and your challenge in the ways that you contradict us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Money has always been a source of contention in the church. Paul was raising a fund to assist the saints who were in Jerusalem. This was most likely because there was a famine and that the Christians in particular gathered in the city of Jerusalem who were of Jewish origin were suffering greatly. But as we know also from just our broader reading of the New Testament, that there was significant amounts of tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And how exactly were the Gentiles to be received into the church? And so this offering that Paul was collecting, going around the Gentile world, had a very specific function. It was to bring peace between Jew and Gentile. And Paul says in Romans 15 that if these Gentiles reap the spiritual blessings of the gospel that comes from the Jews, then they should return thanksgiving by sending this offering back to Jerusalem. And so that was what Paul was at work here in chapter 16 to do, was to raise this peace offering. He was also raising funds for his own missionary journeys, and he mentions that in verse 6. But we know that it was contentious, because Paul has already addressed this with them in person. 
It comes up here in chapter 16, and then once again in his second epistle to the Corinthians. In fact, he spends two entire chapters on it in chapters 8 and 9. And so this morning on Stewardship Sunday, it is my intention to treat you with dignity and respect, which I always promise when it comes to finances, and also straightforwardness as we look at these verses in chapter 16, especially the first six. But what we are after is to ask the question, what can we learn from this brief interaction about financial generosity and stewardship? There's five principles that we'll focus on this morning. First, our financial generosity is a subject of Christian discipleship. Look where Paul begins in chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. This phrase, now concerning, we have seen five times in the book of Corinthians. From chapter 7, verse 1, it appears, and then it appears four other times following the letter. It's the structural feature of Paul's epistle that he writes to them. And in each of those five occasions, he's answering questions that the Corinthians had written to him. And so Paul now is addressing the final question. They had written to him asking about this specific offering. And so he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. And what we see is Paul here is addressing them in their financial generosity, in their, liberal, in their liberality. The, they had sent these questions to him, and now he was not ashamed to give them an answer. He was not ashamed to address them in these concerns of finances. We've seen that Paul was not ashamed to address the Corinthians in any area, whether it was their shame or their pride, whether it was their sexual behaviors or their class associations, whether it was the lawsuits that they were holding against one another, or whether it was their Sunday liturgy. There was nothing that had quarter in the Corinthian congregation. Because Paul saw the Christian life as one that was to be yielded to the glory of God. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. That we are to do all things for the glory of God. And so nothing is exempted from the lordship of Jesus, including our bank accounts. There's no safe space. There's no demilitarized zone. Everything is fair game because we have been bought body and soul by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So money is not off limits, it's not out of bounds, it's not sacrosanct. Now many, especially on the younger end of our congregation, are suspicious when pastors speak about money. There's a cultivated cynicism, in fact, and some of it for very good reason. There are many bad experiences and also bad examples out there in the church. And they have unfortunately touched many of you who are sitting in front of me as I talk about generosity in the church. That said, those bad examples and bad experiences do not give us permission to edit financial generosity from the list of what falls under Christian discipleship. A life yielded to the glory of God in every area, in every aspect, in every sphere will listen to the claim of God in this area as well. And if anything, those bad examples and bad experiences, what they point us to is the need for greater care, for greater transparency, for greater honesty, for greater clarity about what it means to be generous and to respond to the God who first gives us everything. 
And so my appeal to all of you this morning, especially to those who, when you noted that the sermon was about stewardship, did not want to hear this sermon. You specifically thought, oh, is it too late to get out? (laughs) My appeal to you this morning is to listen, to be open to the claim of Jesus Christ, to hear his gracious invitation, to hear his even critique, to hear a word that contradicts us, and to hear a word that comforts us as well that we receive the claim of Jesus Christ over our lives in the area of our finances. Paul addressed it as fair game. He answered their questions. He puts the claim of God on their lives. And so we must allow that same claim to reign over us today. So it's the subject of Christian discipleship. But the second thing we see here in chapter 16 is that our giving is also connected to our worship In verse 2, after Paul explains that he's instructed the churches in Galatia to do this as well, he says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. It's significant that Paul points out here the first day of the week. That was the Roman day Sunday. That was the Lord's day. That was the day that Jesus had risen from the dead. And it was the practice of the early churches, we know from the book of Acts, that on the first day of the week, they gathered for corporate worship in honor of their risen Lord, that the Sabbath had transferred from Saturday to Sunday. And they were now observing a new day of worship. And Paul connects here the practice of giving, of collecting, with that first day of the week. He tells them to set something aside. Now, there are two possible ways to understand this verse, and some people will say, they'll follow the translation of the ESV, and say that privately you are to decide what you're going to give, and then privately set that aside and give it at a later date. Or it's possible also to interpret this verse as privately you are to consider, you are to take to yourself what you are going to give, and then you are to bring that on the first day of the week and make a contribution to the collection. I believe that latter interpretation is correct, that privately we are to consider what we are to give from how God prospers us, that there is an intentionality that is to take place in the life of the Christian, that we are to privately consider that. But then that translates into a public act where we then go and that we give and we contribute to the needs of the church, that this is, what our, this is how our giving connects to our worship. And so there is this intentionality, and friends, with pledge cards, many people will say, oh, is this necessary? I've done this all of my life, and some of you never may have seen it done before at all. But this is our way of trying to promote a culture of intentional generosity in the church. This is what we're after. If you're uncomfortable with the pledge cards, fine. Hear the general principle. But what we are after here, with providing pledge cards to you as we look at 2018, is to ask you to intentionally consider the ways that you can partner in the gospel with Christ's church, the ways that you can engage, asking, how has God prospered me? And how can I then faithfully respond to that? How can I return to God what he's first given to me? Because what's clear here 
for Paul is that there is an intentionality and also there's something regular happening here. The giving was not something just occasional. When a person happened to feel guilty that they had perhaps enjoyed too much. But rather, stewardship is a posture. It's a character that someone embodies as a Christian. And with regularity, considering how God has prospered, and with intentionality, then giving to God and offering that to God. And friends, that is the type of culture. That is the type of place that we long to create. Now, in my church planting experience uh, in Arlington, Virginia, just right outside of Washington, D.C., a couple miles from the capital. Talking with people over the years, they've assumed that the church that I planted and established would have been weak in stewardship. And that's a pretty safe assumption, you would think. Then there are three primary factors that go into that assumption. There were many de-churched people in our congregation. We had people who had been out of church for many, many years who came back in to inhabit the pews. The second thing is that most of the church was under 35 years old. We had a, one couple, one token senior citizen. <laughs> we were under 35 years old. When uh, Melissa and I are your oldest people in the congregation, it's scary. It's under 35. And then we also lived in one of the highest cost of living places in the whole country, Arlington, Virginia. And so it's a pretty safe assumption to say that it's going to be challenging to have a cultural stewardship. It was a smaller church, a tight congregation, but actually one of our challenges was not stewardship. That actually what I learned over the years was that for many of those D and unchurched people that came, that even though it was new to hear teaching about stewardship, once they got it, it became a joy and a privilege to partner in the gospel. The most resistance I actually found inside the church was from evangelicals who had inhabited pews all their lives and not ever cultivated generosity. Those who had never practiced generosity, when they would hear teachings about stewardship, perhaps because of this cynicism that had been growing in the petri dish of their heart, they would then respond negatively. Most of them had been raised in the church and they'd grown comfortable with hearing the claim of Jesus and turning their back on it. And friends, that's a scary place to be. It's scary when we don't hear God's voice, when God's word can actually not penetrate, when it cannot contradict us, when it cannot discomfort us, when it cannot cause us to question ourselves, and when we claim to receive the spiritual blessings of the gospel, and then we don't respond with our financial prosperity. This is a dangerous situation to be in, and we don't want to be there. Because our generosity is connected to our worship. And our worship is connected to our true experience of grace. We'll come back to that in a moment. But our third principle here is that everyone is responsible. Follow with me in verse 2. Once again, after he says, set it aside on the first day, he says, each of you is to put something aside. And this is how Paul views the community. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he will actually say that freely and voluntarily you are to do so. But he's not backing off the command that each of you is to do so. 
But he's saying, yes, we cannot conscript you to do it. We don't want you to do it under compulsion. But he wants to make it clear that everyone is responsible. That if you taste in the spiritual blessings and benefits of grace, if you know our Lord Jesus and everything that he's done for you, each of you is to respond and to be a part of this, to give of yourselves to the cause of the gospel. In the gospel's advance around the Mediterranean, as we'll see in verse 6, or in the gospel's advance in caring for the poor in Jerusalem and making peace in the church. And every year, our treasurer has our bookkeeper run an analysis of our congregation's giving. For those of you who have been with us for the last several years, you're familiar with this report that I give to you. And there are many encouraging things about this report. Over the last year, our number of giving households has grown very strongly. There are more people contributing to our overall budget, and we're seeing increases, and we don't have a financial problem at Christ Church. And that's wonderful news to celebrate, and I'd like to thank you inside of this sermon for the faithfulness that you demonstrate. It's a wonderful thing to pastor a church where you're not constantly living in financial crisis and talking about money from that deficit. And so thank you for that. And that's one of the things that the report gives. The other thing that the report gives is that also we are better than average. The average evangelical church in the country, you take every head in the congregation and you multiply that and you expect about $1,000 from every head. And that gives you the number of the annual budget. We're over double that. And so that's very good. But I'd also like to share with you that beating the American averages is not always the signs of health. <laughs> and some of the numbers that we have here also reveal that there's room for growth. We beat another average, which is that 20% of the people give 80% of the funds. That is one thing that often marks the life of a congregation. What we discovered in our analysis is that 33% of our congregation gives 80% of the funds. And so we're going in the right direction. This has actually been growing over the past several years. And we're seeing so more people contributing to the main body of the funding of the church. That's a wonderful indicator. But then this last number is perhaps the most challenging, is that 50% of the congregation gives 92.5% of the offering. And so you can quickly tabulate the math that 50% of the congregation gives 7.5% of the offering. Now, friends, that's as deep as my analysis goes. I never see what anyone in this church gives and never want to. I'm not interested. But what I am interested in is us all taking up the responsibility from how God prospers us to respond to him in faithfulness, to partner with him in the gospel in our finances. That is what my responsibility is to you as pastor it is not to raise a church's budget. It's to make sure that you're free from the love of money and the great evil that that can bring into your life. And friends, when we look at these numbers, it points out that there may be areas that we need to be concerned by, that we need to pay attention to. Now, these numbers are not exact and precise. You see, somebody might find and fall into that lower tier, that 50% that gives 7.5%, and they may be a faithful tither. And God has no critique of you. In fact, God loves your generosity. Just like the widow who brought her two small coins and clanged them at the temple, and Jesus commended her. 
It's not about the amounts. But in the Bible, it's about percentage and proportion of what God entrusts to us. And friends, I think that we can recognize that that 7.5% number represents something. And that as a family, we may have things to consider. If everyone is responsible, if everyone is invited into the privilege of giving, are we going in like that? Are we heading into that discipline and into that practice, that intentional practice, in the same way that Jesus headed into the cross, with the same rigor that he took up in going to the cross for salvation? And so we have room to grow. But the question is, how exactly do we grow? How does the apostle encourage growth amongst people who oftentimes grow tired of talk about money and who are cynical about the church? This leads us to our fourth principle here, though, that our generosity corresponds to our experience of grace. And that is that the best way to address financial stewardship and financial liberality is not to focus solely upon finances. We talk about money when it comes up in Scripture, and then I guarantee you that we're going to talk about it one Sunday, specifically each year in the month of November on Stewardship Sunday. But the general course for us in encouraging liberality and generosity is not to beat you over the head about money. The general course is to encourage you as to what it means to be a servant bought by the grace of God and then one who renders thanksgiving to God in every area of life with a life yielded to the glory of God. That is the general course. And this is where we desire to focus because a heart gripped by the gospel does respond to the call of the gospel across life. And we never do so perfectly. And Paul has to engage this with the Corinthian congregation. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians, where he writes his second letter to them, they had not responded to this request that we find in chapter 16. He has to encourage them on in it. And look how he does so. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And this is the dynamic that the gospel brings into our life of what we call the indicative and the imperative. Or that is what God has done for us in Christ and then what is to result from that. How we respond to it and how we hear the command of God and His claim on our lives. And friends, our generosity is directly connected to that experience of grace. That when we have been bought and when we have been redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus, when he has delivered us from what we cannot deliver ourselves, and when he has done what we could not do on our behalf, this frees the heart from the love of other things. Notice what Paul says in chapter 9 as he goes on in verses 6 and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. 
for God loves a cheerful giver. But Paul was not going to force people. He was not going to conscript you. He was not going to dive into the details of your bank account. But rather, he was going to compel you and desire to seek to persuade you that you would engage in cheerful and joyous giving as part of the whole community taking up the responsibility and as part of your returning thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ for what he's done. Now, people ask, what then often leads to an impoverished experience of grace? If generosity is connected to our experience of the gospel, what oftentimes cuts our experience of grace? And I'd say inside of southern context, there are primarily two things that sever our experience of grace. The first is this, is that there is a habit of possessing a weak experience and understanding of the problem of sin. Sometimes people will have the concept that I am a sinner. They have the theological category, but then experientially they have not caught up with that. And so grace is not everything it's intended to be because they have never really reckoned with what it means to be in their sins. And for others, Sin is just simply not as big a problem as it actually is. That Jesus is someone who comes in and assists and helps. He is a personal assistant to them in life. But sin is not seen as the threat that it is. That which casts us under the wrath of God and separates us from him. That we're dead in the condition of sin. That sin cuts us off from God. That sin corrupts and pollutes our world. And friends, when we have a weak understanding of sin... We will have an impoverished understanding of grace. It will never really make sense to us. But the second thing that often challenges people's experience of grace is a weak understanding of what lies ahead in the resurrection from the dead. Oftentimes, when we think of the grace of God, we think of it as fire insurance. That is, as something that protects us from the wrath of God and that we will then escape this physical world And that we'll go to heaven and we'll play the harp and we'll sit on the clouds with all the angels and we'll be gathered there forever. We've pointed out over the past weeks in reading 1 Corinthians 15 that this makes a mockery of everything that God has intended for you. That yes, when we die, we go to be with the Lord and we're at peace with him. Our brother Tom is at peace with the Lord today. But he's also now joined the saints and the saints around the heavenly throne. As Revelation 5 and 6 makes clear that they're crying out to God, how long? They're crying out, how long until our bodies are raised from the dead? And friends, what God has stored up for his people, what he has stored up for us in Christ, when Christ returns, that which is planted in the ground perishable will be raised imperishable. It will be glorified. It will be made right and new, free from sin and all of its corruption. And we will inhabit a new world where God will dwell with us. That's the promise. Creation corrected and made right and freed from its bondage to decay. And friends, when we grab that notion of grace, that it's far more than just being forgiven by God. Yes, it includes being forgiven by God, but it includes so much more. The promise is so much more profound, and it grips us 
inside of the deepest needs that we have. But friends, this message, when it's not understood, can get a very apathetic response. But when we hear the claims of the gospel, it becomes nothing to be a tither. It's a small thing. And so we receive God's claim this morning. That's what we need to do. Hear the grace-filled confrontation, the contradiction that is before you. Hear it. Allow that word to be absorbed into your heart. And listen carefully and allow the gospel's comfort to persuade you, to move you. Final principle that we see here in 1 Corinthians 16 is that our giving supports the work of the gospel. Paul's been focused thus far on the collection for the saints, but then in verse 6, he says, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. I know it's not plain, but this verb, help me on my journey, is a very particular verb. He uses it in Romans chapter 15 as well, where he appeals to them that perhaps they will be able to help him on his journey to Spain. And what this verb includes is the provision of food and money and traveling companions so that you reach your destination to accomplish your task. And what Paul is inviting the Corinthians into is a partnership in the gospel for the advance of the gospel. But if you remember, several chapters before in chapter 9, Paul mentions that he had not asked the Corinthians for money. And the Corinthians were actually somewhat offended. And people have asked for hundreds of years, why had Paul not asked the Corinthians to assist him? Why had he not tried to take advantage of them? And friends, the answer comes very clear. That Paul didn't see the Corinthian congregation as mature enough. And so he had not given them the privilege of partnering in the gospel. He had not asked because he didn't think they were mature enough to take up that responsibility. But now he turns to them. After correcting them and providing discipline for them. And preaching the grace of God to them. He says, perhaps in the future you will be able to partner with me as I go forward in the gospel. And so when God places his claim upon us and he invites us to partner with him in the advance of the gospel through the ministries of the church, he's doing so as a compliment. You're mature enough. Christ's church is certainly mature enough. And friends, we want to act as men and women who are grown and mature. We don't want to be immature we want to stand firm. We want to abound in the works of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain. And so we want to take up what his claim is, knowing all that his grace implies for us, everything that's been bought. It's a privilege. Take up the opportunity to invest. It's the most important thing in the world. My seminary, when I was a young college student, won several awards for their advertising campaign. I was not a student at the seminary yet, but I was considering which seminaries to, to attend. And they had a full-page ad with Shamu jumping, this was prior to many accidents, with Shamu jumping at SeaWorld. And then they had simply in the corner, join the campaign to save the world's most endangered species. 
And behind Shamu was a crowd of people. And friends, that's what you're invited into. To join the campaign to save the world's most endangered species. God's images that have been defiled by sin. There's nothing more important to the Christian. Partnering in the gospel and all that that means. All the various ways that the church's ministry presses forward. Whether it is caring in mercy and need for those who don't have food. Or whether it's advancing the ministries of the church in planting churches all the way around to Spain as Paul was given to do. That's what our financial generosity enables. Several years ago, I was speaking with a friend who converted later in life. And at his conversion, one of the major issues for him was this issue of his finances. He was in a faithful Bible-teaching church, and he understood that he was to respond in generosity and that he was to be a tither. And yet, his life, because of his prior commitments, was a mess. His financial life was a wreck. And he didn't know how he was ever going to give and how he was going to get to that place. And one of the main issues over those first years of his discipleship was God dealing with him on these issues over and over and over. And him working to become a giver. And seeing God solve his financial problems and address them and provide for him. And that he actually became a joyful and cheerful giver. A humble man who delights to be generous to others, to give of his own resources to the cause of Christ. And friends, if you asked him today, do you have any regrets about becoming a cheerful and joyful giver? He would say that he has none. And actually, I've never met anyone who knew how to be generous and liberal in their giving who has regrets. That God secretly feeds them and nourishes them, that God provides for them, and that they are in touch with something there That the one who holds on to his own money and holds on to his self-concern doesn't know. But friends, I've never met someone who's stingy and full of self-concern, who at the end of their life says, I don't regret it. And so let's not go that way. Allow the grace of God to confront you and contradict you. Allow the grace of God to persuade you and comfort you. Allow the grace of God to conform you into shape of Jesus, who was liberal and generous, who spared nothing, who gave of him very self, who laid down his life to buy us, to purchase us, to redeem us, and to welcome us into this great partnership in the church on the way to the great future God has for us. Let's go that way that the gospel of Christ invites us into. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we hear all of your claims upon our lives, we ask that you would help us, that we would know what it is to respond to your grace and your mercy in every area of our lives. May we not content ourselves to simply hear your commands in certain things that we have under control, but would we hear your commands across everything, and would our lives be yielded to your glory? Work in us, forgive our sins, there are many, And put us on the path to faithfulness. Teach us what that means. Guide and direct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.